Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Jews throughout the world are now observing Hanukkah, the festival of lights. While celebrations are known for candle lighting, delicious foods, and light-hearted children's games, today we'll hear about Hanukkah's stories written for adults. Professor Miriam Udell teaches Yiddish language and literature at Emory University. She offers insight to serious stories with a Hanukkah theme by the great writers Sholem Aleichem and Nobel laureate Isaac Bashevis Singer. First, Another great storyteller, theater director Andre Gregory vowed never to write a memoir, hence the title of his book, This Is Not My Memoir. We do learn a lot about his life, which is extraordinary. He joins us now via Zoom. Andre Gregory, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Your parents fled Russia for Berlin, then Paris, where you were born in 1934, later escaping to London, and finally New York. You write that you were only one of three Jews at an elite private school in New York, but in those days, the early 1940s, you believed you were Russian aristocrats. Why? I think that was a fiction that my parents invented, partly because they wanted us to assimilate, even though we had escaped Holocaust Europe, there was still an enormous amount of anti-Semitism uh, in the States. In fact, as late as, oh, I think about 1962, my late wife and I tried to get an apartment in New York and we were denied the right to buy the apartment by the board because I was a Jew. So uh, I, think, uh, I think my parents were trying to protect us. They were all also somewhat pretentious and wanted to assimilate 
on a rather large scale, which was how they, you know, finally were able to hang out with the likes of Garbo, Dietrich, Vladimir Horowitz, Yasha Heifetz, just an amazing group of people. And they managed to do that because they were, quote, society people, unquote, under the mantle of being aristocratic Russians, they were able to create a rather glittering salon. So when did you finally learn you were Jewish? I guess about a couple of months after I got out of college, I was lunching with a friend in a New York restaurant. And a friend of mine who was at college with me came up to me and said, is it true you're Jewish? And I was mortified with embarrassment because, of course, having disguises as Russian aristocrats rather than Jews, I think I was quite anti-Semitic at that time. But I changed all that later because I worked uh, in my, oh, I guess early 50s with rabbis, I learned Hebrew, I could chant prayers in Hebrew. So I had been a closet Jew who came out of the closet. How did appearing in a school production of Shakespeare's play The Tempest teach you the therapeutic power of acting? Well, I've been ousted. I think I think this was another act of anti-Semitism. I've been ousted by my school. I've been accused of doing something I'd never done. I think this was uh, with sexual innuendos. Uh, in fact, uh, being one of the brighter students at school, I've been accepted at Phillips Exeter, uh, a very intellectual boarding school, high school, and my school wrote them to say I wasn't morally fit. So I was turned into a pariah. And I guess because I was a very polite and at that time repressed young man, I never expressed the pain, rage, or anger that I felt as a result of the anti-Semitism and as uh, a result of this scapegoating that was done to me. So when I went on the stage in the school play, I looked out at the audience and I saw all these teachers and these parents who had falsely accused me of doing something I'd never done. And for the first time, I was absolutely filled with rage and pain. So that as I said, the lines of the play, the lines had a subtext of a very emotional subtext. So I was learning the basic rule of acting. In that moment, I knew how to act. And from that moment, theater was my addiction of choice. Yeah, you could describe that as your drug to relieve the pain of living. Your mother did not defend you to the school administration. How was that possible? Well, 
I think in those days, parents always assume that the school is always right. So I was automatically wrong. And then on top of that, my father uh, had entered the first stage of a very severe bipolar disorder. So he was in a way going insane and a lot of my mother's energy went towards him. I was fascinated to read that for a period of eight years during the 1940s, your family spent the summer at a home in Los Angeles owned by the Nobel Prize winning author Thomas Mann. Would you tell us about those summers your family spent in L.A.? Oh, they were glorious. You know, America had always, as you know, been bordered by the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. So America always felt safe from any outside invasion. And I think it was part of the reason why we were so horrified and shocked by 9-11 was we just didn't believe that we could be attacked. So California during the Second World War was sort of like the south of France before the Second World War. Uh, you know, in those days, there were miles and miles and miles of orange grows, lemon grows, avocado farms. L.A. was almost rustic. It was beautiful. Bougainvillea everywhere, gardens everywhere. So it was a paradise that felt safe, totally safe from any kind of Nazi incursion. And our house was filled with amazing people, you know, like Garbo, Dietrich, Marx Brothers, Fred Astaire. It was astounding. Even, even as I say that to you, I think, God, did all of that happen to me? <laughs> well, I was wondering, <laughs> with your parents' parties, guest lists, which were essentially who's who in Hollywood or in the free world, what impression did that make upon you? Well, you know, it was so long ago, it's hard to say, but... Of course, movie stars back then, unlike now, were highly original, eccentric, uh, tropical birds, you could say. <laughs> you, you know, probably today, Dietrich Garbo Humphrey Bogart would not have been able to get a job in the movies because they looked so bizarre. So... I guess I must have been absolutely intrigued by these flamboyant people, and I must have been impressed by them. You know, we were seeing people around our swimming pool that I was seeing up on the big screen, and it must have had a profound effect on me. I'm sure it was part of the reason I went into the theater. Yeah. Early in my career, which coincided with the early years of NPR, we liked to describe radio as the theater of the mind. Would, mm -hmm. you, would you talk about the impact radio had on you in your teenage years? Oh, it had a huge impact. Uh, Basil Rathbone, who was 
the original Sherlock Holmes had a radio program once a week and he invited my brother and I to attend and I was absolutely mesmerized by how some little machine could create, you know, the sound of horses and carriages and everything. Everything was in the imagination of the listener, which in fact is the heart of what we were doing in my dinner with Andre. People very often say, oh, you know, how, how could you possibly hold people's interest? Just two guys talking at a table. But in fact, I'm telling stories, uh, which I also do uh, in This Is Not My Memoir. You know, stories of the Andre character on a camel going into the Sahara, stories of the Andre character being buried alive. And what's powerful about that is each member of the audience is actually seeing when I tell these stories in their own mind, they see the Sahara, they see being buried alive, they see going to Tibet. So in fact, my dinner with Andre is really as spectacularly visual as Lawrence of Arabia or Bridge on the River Kwai, except you don't actually see the spectacle, you imagine it in your mind. So uh, it activates the imagination of the audience. And that was all very strongly affected by my early days of radio. Theatre director Andre Gregory. We'll return with more of our conversation about his new book, This Is Not My Memoir, after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with theater director Andre Gregory. We've been discussing his new book, This Is Not My Memoir. The book was co-authored by the theater writer Todd London. Here's Andre Gregory talking about the collaborative process. Well, it was lovely because he's a lovely man and a very, very intelligent man. And as I had never written a book before, the task of structuring it would have been overwhelming. I couldn't have done it. And Todd was an enormous help in taking my material 
and structuring it into something which then with the help of my brilliant editor, Will Schwalbe, we were able to make into This Is Not My Memoir. A tiny little book in a way, 240 pages or something like that. It was originally 2,000 pages. Oh no. And, yeah, <laughs> oh yes. And Todd was uh, very helpful in helping to whittle that down. Wow. You include some terrifying stories about your infancy, Andre, to give us an idea of your upbringing. Please tell us about Icy. Oh, Icy, Icy was, my, was my governess, a, a wonderful English woman. And the way she came to us was, uh, my mother was walking along the street in Paris one day, and she bumped into Hilda, who I nicknamed Icy, and was uh, with a friend of my mother's. And Icy, uh, oh, probably was about 20 years old, who intended to go back to England and became become a hospital nurse. And my mother was bemoaning the fact that she and my father had to go on a trip together and they had no one to take care of little Andre. So Icy Hilda said, how long would it be for? And they said, a couple of weeks. And she said, oh, I'll do it. That, that's no problem. So Icy came to live with us. My parents disappeared. And two weeks went by, two months went by. And she one day received a letter from them saying they were very busy. They were having problems coming back. Had she seen all the capitals of Europe? Of course, she hadn't. So they said, well, we're going to send you some money. You can travel all over Europe, see the capitals, and take little Andre with you. So Icy saved my life. I think if it hadn't been for her, I would have been in a mental institution. But before that, your parents actually fed you caviar exclusively? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my mother and grandmother thought, Caviar would be nourishing. So they started feeding me nothing but caviar, and I was getting thinner and thinner. And suddenly, even to them, it became clear I was on the edge of malnutrition. So they took me to the hospital, and the hospital started. I laugh about it, but of course, it was probably for a little kid terrifying. Oh, my God. And, and they would have been turned over to the authorities, putting Seconol in your baby formula? Yeah, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no spoilers. <laughs> After college, you wanted nothing more than to attend the Yale School of Drama, and I can imagine how devastated you felt with the exceptionally nasty rejection you received. Did that dean ever learn about your successful career? Yeah, he, he said to me after the interview, you know, it's very hard to tell what a young person is like. They have no lines of experience in their face. But he said, occasionally, I do interview somebody like you who clearly has no talent whatsoever. Don't go into the theater. He said, the theater... It's hard enough if you're talented. Become a doctor, become a businessman. 
Uh, yeah, no, it was a very cruel rejection. And I, I just have no idea whether he lived long enough to see where my career went. I hope he did. I hope he did, too. You and your wife, Chiquita, married young, still in your 20s. It seems she was accepting of your search for meaning through theater. How did your travel to Berlin and your experience at the Bertolt Brecht Theater change your life? Well, you know, if you're a painter and you've never seen Matisse or Cezanne, and then one day you do, your eyes just open wide with disbelief at the beauty of it all. And, you know, this was one of the greatest theaters of the 20th century. And in the book, you can, I think there's some pretty fascinating descriptions of going into communist Berlin and also descriptions of how amazing, amazing the theater was. You know, I myself, uh, I, I almost never go to the theater. So I don't really miss that Broadway is shut down, although I think for others that's a terrible thing. The reason for that is, without tooting my own horn, um, as a theater director, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. So going to mediocre theater is totally claustrophobic. The, the nice thing about starting to hate the book you're reading is you just shut it and put it in your library and it disappears forever. Or if you go to an exhibit of paintings and it's quite banal, you just walk out the door, but you're trapped in the theater. And uh, in fact, when we were doing my Uncle Vanya for an audience of about 30 people, which eventually, as you know, Louis Mal turned into a great film, Vanya on 42nd Street. Uh, but when we were doing it in the theater, I invited Marty Scorsese to come and see it because I'd had the amazing task of playing John the Baptist in his movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. And I really wanted Marty to see my work, and he said, oh, I, I have to decline. You know, I'll, I'll, I'd be in that little audience of 30. People would know who I am. I hate the theater. I get claustrophobic at the theater, and I wouldn't be able to leave. It would be terrible. So I said, no, don't say another word. I totally understand how you feel. From Lee Strasberg head of the actor's studio and father of the American method of acting, you learned that the theater in some fundamental way belongs to the actor. After reading that, I wondered, with your love for directing, why you didn't pursue a career in film, which clearly belongs to the director. I guess I didn't because... I'm a technological idiot. I, if I tried to make um, a protein shake in, <laughs> you know, in, in the machine, whatever it's called, it would probably explode and 
shoot protein shake all over the kitchen. I can't put a light in a light bulb. In fact, I was told a, a, a lovely story by the great orchestra conductor, Simon Rattle. He, he went to have tea with one of the greatest pianists in the world, an Austrian. And uh, his wife, uh, put on some milk to heat for the tea. And his wife went out of the house and the, the piano said, oh my God, what do we do about the milk? <laughs> and Simon, Simon said, well, you just turn off the stove. You know, so I was, uh, I was always uh, a mess. Anything sadly to do with the home or with technology and film, Film and theater, even though people don't often realize it, film and theater are about as different as painting and poetry because film is a technical medium and theater is a medium for the actor. So much as I would have loved to have gone into film because of all these movie people we knew when I was a kid, I just didn't think it was my medium. I just knew the theater was. Three different regional theater jobs didn't work out. As audiences and board members did not appreciate your avant-garde and often outrageous productions. But when you formed your own ensemble, the Manhattan Project, the group became a very important part of the 1970s theater scene. In fact, your first production, Alice in Wonderland, was sensational. It was a watershed event in theater. Why did you view that production of Alice as a portrait of your family? Well, as you'll see, reading the book, I saw the world of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass as a world inhabited by mostly horrifying, cruel, sadistic men who are taking this little girl and just, you know, throwing her against the ceiling. Uh, in fact, the wonderful theater critic John Lahr, the son of Bert Lahr, from The Wizard of Oz, John Lahr, when he wrote about the Alice, compared it to young people during the Vietnam War who had a kind of innocence that was being destroyed by the adult culture, the warlike adult culture. Well, let me, let me put it this way. In The Brothers Karamazov, Alyosha one of, one of the main characters, one of the three uh, Karamazov brothers says, until people stop being cruel to children, there will always be wars. And so I think, I think you were seeing in my Alice, what for some children, not just me, is the madness the claustrophobia, the terror of being a child 
in a screwed up adult world. And that extended to politics from your family to the war at the time. And in fact, later in the book, you write that the film, the 1981 film, My Dinner with Andre, was intensely political. And that's, that was lost on some people initially. Well, it was, it was understandably lost because we were very subtle, Wally and I, in the writing of that aspect. But it's an indictment of capitalism that begins with this writer who can't make a living. And there's this waiter, wonderful waiter in the movie who is obviously from his face just as intelligent and just as eccentric as the two main characters. His problem is he doesn't have money, so he has to wait on tables. There's, uh, there's a strong difference of classes in the movie. And also, there are many, 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 many references to fascism and many, many, many references to the danger of, Amer of, the, of the American people in going to sleep and not noticing that around them fascism is coming to birth. So on one level, uh, apart from the entertainment level of the film and apart from the difference of opinions of these two oddballs, uh, it's, it's a movie warning America, wake up, fascism is coming. And sadly, that's what we've seen in the last four years. And thank God, it looks as if it's been avoided. Yes. This film, My Dinner with Andre Feet, for anyone who hasn't seen it, features you in one extended conversation with your friend, the wonderful actor, writer, playwright, Wallace Shawn, and you are dining at this landmark restaurant, Café des Artistes, talking about theater, spirituality, fascism, communism, the pleasure of having a cup of coffee. This dialogue for the duration of nearly two hours. Roger Ebert, the late film critic, selected it as the best movie of the year. How did that film change your life, Andre? In many ways. One way was in my personal life, I could never keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was always, you know, uh, I had a strong dose of narcissism and a strong ego and I suppose a lot of insecurity. So in any evening with friends, talk, 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 talk at them, not listening to them. So uh, talking for two hours, the longest role in the history of film, I think I, think I got bored with myself and no longer felt the need uh, to be that person. And then on top of that, you know, when the movie first came out, Time Magazine said it was a boring, amateurish 
film with no direction, no real actors. The New York Times said, it's a Winnie the Pooh kind of fable, if you like that sort of thing, which I don't. So we were a flop. We, uh, this movie we had worked on for years was just going down the drain until, bless them, Siskel and Ebert, who had a huge influence at the time, gave it nine thumbs up, named it the best film of the year, and the rest is history. So, you know, you have to be changed in some way by being that successful. It's both pleasurable and confusing. <laughs> Later, Louis Mal directed another film, Vanya on 42nd Street, which you mentioned. This actually a theater rehearsal of your production of Chekhov's play, Uncle Vanya. You write that Vanya is your most autobiographical work. How so? One day I was looking at the film, even though I'd of course seen the theater production a thousand times. And it suddenly occurred to me, oh my God, the character of Yelena, that's my mother. Oh my God, the character of Sonia, that's Icy. Oh my God, Larry Pine playing Dr. Astrov. That's my totally nutty uncle. You know, I, I just realized, wow, I didn't know it, but I was casting seven or eight actors, all of whom are deep down people of my own family. But then, you know, I, I think everything we do is not a memoir as artists. It's all about what we know, what we've experienced, what we see. So yeah, yeah, it was all my family. Hmm. You write a lot about your spiritual searches throughout the years, gurus, learned rabbi. Do you believe it was destiny that led you to find love and marriage again with Cindy Klein? No, I think it was years of psychotherapy that <laughs> opened my eyes. I generally been drawn to very intelligent, very screwed up, very needy women. And I think years of psychotherapy got me rid of that drug. They say you, there's a tendency to always fall in love with your own poison. And I had been doing that a lot, but Cindy was an antidote to all the poison. Thank you, Freud and Jung. No kidding. Now, he could have been at your parents' party if he had been in L.A. instead of London. Absolutely. Absolutely. Page 40. Would you read the paragraph, please? Theater is a metaphor. Please. Yeah. Theater is a metaphor for life. You get kicked onto the stage just as we are born. You struggle for a few hours with your problems and those are the people playing scenes with you. And then you exit. The curtain falls and usually the play is forgotten, just as I will be forgotten. Andre Gregory, you will not be forgotten. Oh, and bless you, thank you. <laughs> And I will not forget this conversation. Me too. <laughs> <laughs>
Me too. It's I who thank you. Award-winning theater director Andre Gregory. His new book is This Is Not My Memoir. Today is the first day of Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights. There are rich, fascinating stories related to the holiday that were written in Yiddish early in the 20th century. Professor Miriam Udell of Emory University teaches Yiddish language and culture. Welcome back to City Lights. It's such a pleasure to be here with you again, Lois. Well, we last spoke in September about your wonderful book, Honey on the Page, a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. The stories you've chosen for us today are written for adult readers. Before we delve into them, would you just talk a bit about Hanukkah and some misconceptions about its importance as a holiday? Sure. So Hanukkah is considered a minor holiday on the Jewish calendar cycle. However, because of its proximity to Christmas in, as a December holiday, it's taken on a somewhat outsized importance in the American context in particular. Um, now, when I say a minor holiday, that doesn't mean that it's not special. We, we think all of our, of our holidays are special, but it's a, a holiday that celebrates the triumph of underdogs, the overturning of what seemed like it was going to be a cruel fate, and turning aside that fate for something happier. Yes. So it's essentially a festival as distinctive from a serious holy day. That's right. And it is a time for lighting candles and, and brightening up the dark winter nights and a time of levity and a time when we tend to focus on children and giving them a wonderful holiday experience, but that's not to the exclusion of adults who, who also need to tap into something meaningful about lighting up the darkness. Yes, Hanukkah is a lighthearted observance, a time for humor and playing games, adults included. How does that inform the stories you have for us today, Miriam? Sure. So one of the customs of Hanukkah is to play with a spinning top that's called a dreidel. Dreyen is the Yiddish word for turning, turning about or spinning. And so the dreidel is marked with letters that are an acronym for a great miracle happened there, or the dreidels that are produced in the, the Holy Land in Israel are marked with a great miracle happened here. But either way, uh, we spin the dreidel, and depending on which letter it lands on, we either take coins or M&Ms or whatever we're playing with from the pot or we put them back in, which means that it's a game for stakes. It's a gambling game. And not only did Jews play dreidel in Eastern European 
tradition, but they also played all kinds of other games for stakes around Hanukkah, such as cards, various kinds of gambling card games. And so that becomes one of the important themes that we see in the Hanukkah stories that the classic Yiddish writers composed for adults. And I'd like to talk about a couple of those today. Please. The version of the holiday we know in the U.S. is somewhat far removed from the original intention of the Festival of Lights, though much of the observance of Hanukkah in the U.S. is very well-meaning in terms of its inclusivity. Do you agree? I do. It's it's really a holiday that is so ancient and carries so many potential messages and has been thought about and, and written about in different ways. And I think when when you're talking about any sort of ancient cultural artifact, it takes on new meaning every time. And this year, in the midst of the pandemic, the image that, that keeps coming to my mind is that we have this little bit of oil that had to endure for eight nights. And that's fuel. And we're all running very near empty on the fuel that we have, but we're all hoping that it's going to last us for another little while and get us through the period that we need to get through so that things really can be brighter again. But coming back to, to what you're asking about, Lois, um, I would love to talk a little bit at first about a story by Sholem Alechem called Dos Dreidel, the Dreidel, that was translated very elegantly by Eliza Chevron as Benny's Luck. So this is a story that focuses on a boy who has lost his father, which in traditional Jewish culture marks him as an orphan. If you have lost either parent, you are considered an orphan, which is a special status in the sense that the Bible cautions us to take particular care with the, the feelings and the well-being of widows and orphans. And so that's a, that's a mandate that's often observed in the breach in Yiddish literature. So the little boy at the, the center of the story has a very hardworking mom um, who can't really afford any luxuries, but who manages to scrape together a subsistence living and send him to the local Jewish elementary school, or cheder. And when he gets there, he finds a pretty cold reception among the other boys. They belong to more prosperous families, mostly, mostly two-parent families, and he's really bullied at school until the biggest, richest, kind of alpha boy, a boy named Benny, <laughs> takes our protagonist under his wing and fends off the would-be hazers and, and bullies of this boy. And so he wins a kind of hangdog loyalty and gratitude from the protagonist, who's, who's never named, so I have to keep calling him the, the protagonist. And that's great until Hanukkah time comes and everybody starts playing dreidel and gambling away whatever little bit of anything they have. They have buttons, they have nuts and raisins. Some of them even receive Hanukkah gelt, um, a few coins for the holiday. And Benny, the, the 
erstwhile protector keeps winning and winning every round. And our protagonist, who's also our narrator, it's a first person narration, he's, he's looking back on these times from adulthood and he's talking about this, this holiday time when he was in elementary school and he said that he became so desperate to try to reverse all of his losses. He got sucked into the gambling so badly that he put up as a collateral a prayer book that his mother had gotten for him, a beautiful little prayer book that contained everything you could, you could possibly desire that his mother had purchased for him as a, a keepsake in memory of his pious and deceased father. And he loses that too. So he really loses everything. And he has this terrible nightmare that his father comes to him and asks him, do you even know the anniversary date, the memorial date of my passing so that you can say the prayer for me? And the boy has forgotten when his father passed away. So he's really symbolically severed that paternal connection because of this gambling with Benny. And the narrator says, whippings heal, but memories are never forgotten. And years later, he's an adult and he's in the train station and he recognizes Benny, who by now is quite stout and he's wearing a gold watch chain that spans his, his belly and they, they meet each other uh, on the train and they're reminiscing about old times. And the narrator sort of tentatively brings up, hey, Benny, you remember that year that you beat everyone so badly at Dreidel? It was like you couldn't lose. And, and Benny starts laughing. He can barely get out the words. He's laughing so hard. And he says, oh, that Dreidel? That dreidel was loaded. That dreidel was rigged. I couldn't lose. And that's where the story leaves off. So that's a heartbreaking <laughs> story. I mean, that's a tear-jerking story, Miriam. What's the moral? <laughs> it is. So, so Sholem Alechem uh, is remembered as a humorist and as a comic writer, and he absolutely is. But it is, as he put it, Gelechter durch Tränen, laughter through tears. And one of the things that really brought him to tears was contemplating the, the economic inequality that was baked into the world then and now. And he tried to really raise consciousness about the unfairness of how, how things worked so that one kid has a trick dreidel and can beat everybody else and, and take everything that they've got. And that's at the micro level. And at the macro level, he felt that the whole um, economic arrangement of modernity with, with the stock markets and you know modern bourses and exchanges was just a version of that rigged dreidel writ large. Mm. So this is an anti- materialistic holiday story. Yes. Very much so. Isaac Bashevis Singer is the name of an author many people 
who aren't familiar with Yiddish culture may know because he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was the only Yiddish writer ever to win the Nobel Prize. And he wrote a number of Hanukkah stories, especially for children. What can you tell us about a Hanukkah Eve in Warsaw? Sure. So this is one of my favorites. He has an entire volume of Hanukkah stories for children called The Power of Light and several other stories uh, sprinkled in, in other places, other collections. And uh, one of the things that I love about a Hanukkah Eve in Warsaw is that it's very realistic and it's a memoir of his own boyhood, the Hanukkah when he was, I think, about 10 years old. And he was referred to as Itche, which is one of the affectionate diminutive names for Isaac. And so he describes how he attended a cheder, again, an elementary school for Jewish boys at the time, a cheder full of kids whose parents earned more money. Once again, that theme of being the disadvantaged boy at cheder, um, more money than his parents did. His father was a very pious rabbi. And his parents not only are poorer than those of his peers, but they're more overprotective. So they have hired the assistant teacher to walk him to and from school every day, which is a form of assistance that none of his friends require. And he, he gets teased about it and he feels awful. So on the eve of this particular Hanukkah, the assistant teacher begs off and asks if he can manage to get himself home because he, the teacher, has other things to do. And little Itcha is thrilled to have this taste of independence. So he starts walking home and the gray sky turns into a blizzard and this snowstorm overtakes him and he loses the way and he ends up one street over from the very pious neighborhood where his family lives. And he's in a completely different world. There is an electric streetcar and there are restaurants and there are businesses. And of course the sun sets probably at 3.30 PM. So this is all happening in the dark on the first night of Hanukkah. And he, he ends up nearly being hit by a streetcar and somebody whisks him into a restaurant and offers him something to eat and asks him, you know, who he is. And he, for reasons he can't even understand, he just uh, comes out with this lie and says he's an orphan. And then somebody else comes into the restaurant and says, orphan, what orphan? I know who he is. He's Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Singer's boy. And so they, they bring him back to his apartment building and he's too embarrassed to go home. So he goes over to the home of his friend Shosha, who has a whole novella devoted to her in the, in the singer canon. And he's playing there with her and fantasizing about running away when his mother and sister come in in a huff. They've been looking for him all evening. They're worried sick. They drag him home and they just want to get going with the Hanukkah observance. They just want to light the candles and eat the potato pancakes, the latkes, and spin the dreidel. And his sister is fuming and his mother is 
kind of wry and annoyed. And his father is absolutely angelically indulgent. And his, his sister wonders, why does the worst dog always get the best bone? And of course, his sister um, in real life is an author, was an author named Hinde Esther Kreitman, who grew up to be an author in her own right. It was a very literary family. He had an older brother who was a novelist and a sister who wrote a thinly disguised memoiristic novel about her experience as a girl in a family with three brothers and she was always put upon and they always got the best of everything. And his story, you know, kind of bears out the truth that Hinde Esther Kreitman was writing about with, with great pique. Emory professor and author Miriam Udell. Her most recent book is Honey on the Page a collection of Yiddish children's literature translated to English. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., Dance Adventure, stories about dance as a travel experience and connecting with local people through a shared love of movement. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. I'm inching toward another round number. Please do follow me at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks to all of you who donated during our recent member drive. We appreciate your generosity and commitment to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.